Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads, generally, for most people, are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. What if we had a show... About solutions. You know, a repair manual for the real world. Not the same old left versus right. I am right, I'm right. and you are wrong. You're wrong. Boring. <laughs> yeah, something new. Yeah, something new. How to make the world a better place. Yeah. How, How do, do we, we fix, fix it? it? How do we fix it? So, Richard, today's show I'm really excited about because it's a guy I've known for a long time, uh, law professor Glenn Reynolds, who I, I think is one of the most interesting thinkers about law and government out there today, very much a contrarian looking at the world from a, a, a non-traditional perspective. So, And he's going to be talking about this never-ending problem of this revolving door between government and business. Yeah, this has been going on for a very long time, and recently there have been more glaring examples. For instance, the Obamacare architect. Liz Fowler, who left government for a big-paying pharmaceutical job. And then there's the Republican FCC commission member, Meredith Atwell-Baker, who took a lucrative position at Comcast. Yeah, and just a week or two ago, you know, the Obama Justice Department Attorney General, Eric Holder, instead of going, he could have been a judge, or he could have been, you know, done a lot of different things. He went back to his super high-powered Wall Street law firm. Apparently, they reported they never even cleaned out his office. <laughs> you know, they knew he was coming back. Now, we don't know how much money he's making, but you can be damn sure it's a lot more than he was making. Yeah, and the allowed. really disturbing thing about Holder, for instance, is that the biggest criticism of his time as attorney general when it comes to handling Wall Street was, why wasn't any top banker ever prosecuted or sent to jail. Well, you know, Matt Taibbi at Rolling Stone uh, had, had an interesting piece on this. He said, it's one of the biggest quid pro quo deals in the history of government service, you know, and and I don't know if it's explicitly that, but but implicitly this happens all the time. People protect their friends. They they know they're going to be going back to this industry. They don't want to make too many waves. And so this revolving door thing really raises a lot of disturbing questions. Yeah, and for questions. both sides, both liberals and conservatives are, are concerned about this. So our guest today is uh, law professor Glenn Reynolds from the University of Tennessee. Uh, Glenn writes a column for USA Today. He's written a number of books on law and, and policy. And he's also really well known, isn't he, for instapundit? Probably his big old claim to fame is he's one of the original, really big bloggers who really helped create the blog revolution with his blog, Instapundit, that brings kind of a a conservative libertarian view to a lot of issues of the day, but also obsesses about technology and culture and a lot of other topics. Okay, so let's get on with it. Glenn Reynolds. I'm Richard Davies. And I'm Jim Meggs. And it's How Do We Fix It? 
So you've come up, Glenn, with this proposal for a revolving door surtax. What is that? What are you trying to do with that? I was looking for ways to deal with this. And, you know, I wrote a book on political ethics back now over 15 years ago called The Appearance of Impropriety. There are all kinds of laws and, and designed to limit influence peddling. And they've all been basically complete failures. So I was trying to think what would work. And I said, well, what part of the federal government are people actually afraid of? What part has teeth? And that led me to the IRS. And I started thinking uh, it was actually occasioned by Elizabeth Warren complaining about uh, what she called the Wall Street shuffle of people going from regulators to you know, places like Goldman Sachs and back and forth. Uh, and I said, well, you know, when you hire somebody who's worked in the government to work for your big corporation or lobby group or whatever – uh, you're hiring them not just for sort of who they are, but for what they know and who they know. And those are all connections they've made while they work for the government. So it seems only fair for the government to, to share in those profits somehow. On the surtax, just walk me through a little bit more how you think it should work. What rate, ideally, should the surtax be? Uh, so my proposal is a surtax, which is it's a tax that goes on top of whatever your regular income tax is. And you know, we could haggle about the rates. I, I proposed 50%. I could be convinced to go higher. Uh, but uh, the way it would work is you leave the government. Say you've been a fairly senior government executive. You made uh, a, a good government salary, uh, say $100,000 a year. Uh, you go to a place uh, outside the government where you're making $500,000 a year. 50% uh, of the difference between your government salary and your private salary just is taken right off the top as a surtax. So you would pay $200,000 in that, and then you'd pay regular income tax on the remaining $300,000, just like everyone else. It's only fair for the government to sort of claw some of that back. And what should be the trigger for this? For instance, if you went to out of the government to a job that didn't make you a huge amount of money, should you be affected? No. Well, if say, say you made $100,000 in the government and you went to another job that paid you $100,000, uh, the surtax wouldn't apply because it only applies to the difference between the two salaries. And if there's no difference, there's no surtax. How big is this problem of the revolving door? Well, it's pretty big. We hear about it mostly in the context of political appointees. But there are huge numbers of people in the senior civil service who do the same thing. And, you know, I don't want to throw stones... Again, you leave a government agency, you more than double your salary, and you're hired by somebody to basically address the regulations that you were enacting when you worked for the agency. And, and that's problematic uh, in two ways. Uh, the easy way that it's problematic is that uh, when you get out, you're basically rewarded for creating complicated regulations because the more complicated the regulations you create while you're in the government are, the more people need to hire you to understand them when you get out. But the even more problematic part of this is that when you are in the government and thinking about retiring and moving to a more lucrative position outside, uh, you also kind of have the incentive not to uh, foul your nest, not to make people outside the government dislike you enough that they won't want to hire you when you get out. Uh, so there's a real incentive to be friendly to the industries that you're regulating and not to push them too hard. You may do a lot of stuff for show to play in the news or to please your superiors, but uh, when push comes to shove, you're probably going to pull your punches uh, on the stuff that really matters to these constituency groups. Right, right. So I think you know one place that, that a lot of people were aware of this phenomenon happening was in the military-industrial complex where these big generals are on the team that are specking out the new jet. They don't have much incentive to hold down costs because they know 
when they retire, Lockheed or whoever the, the contractor is, is going to be a great place to go work, and they want to be as friendly as possible. What you're saying is that the kind of low-level legal corruption has become the model for all sorts of industries. Well, yeah. I mean, peace activists came up with this term back in, I think it was the 60s or the 70s, uh, about defense called the Iron Triangle. And the idea was you, know, you had the, this triangle with three legs. One is the people in the Defense Department. Uh, one is the group of contractors and, and companies that benefit. And then the third leg is the uh, congressional delegations that are influenced by both of them. Uh, and the thing about this is it's just as true everywhere else in the government. Yeah, uh, yeah. You know, so this, this problem has grown. It's, it's much know, bigger. Yeah, and it was it was never limited only to the defense world. That was just uh, the part they chose to emphasize. Uh, but it's always been this way. Uh, since at least the big administrative explosion. Beyond all these you know, sort of financial issues, there's another side of it. There's a strong tendency for uh, chumminess simply because you know, if you're a guy and you work at, I don't know, say you work at the FAA and you regulate drones, uh, who cares about drones? Well, most people care a little, but you know, Google cares about drones a lot. Amazon cares about drones a lot. You go to conferences where people talk about drones. You meet people from the drone industry because they care and they're there. Even if there weren't all this stuff, people would tend to be kind of chummy just because uh, you're typically working on stuff that's kind of arcane and, and the only people who care about it as much as you do are the people you're regulating. You know, yeah, but, you know, but isn't it helpful to have people in the government who know about the industries that they're regulating and, and vice versa, having executives in these industries who know how to deal with government? Oh, absolutely. It certainly is. But at some point, it gets to the point where it gets hard to tell the industry from the government. And I think we're, we're well past that point in an awful lot of areas. I think one thing that we see happen a lot is that it's not all members of the industry. It's, it's the top players. It's the big boys, the big banks. As you said, more complicated regulations don't usually hurt the biggest players, but they tend to keep out the, the upstarts and the newcomers. No, that's, that's right. Regulation tends to favor big entities that can afford to have an office uh, devoted to compliance, as we like to call it in the field, uh, over small ones that don't. And uh, that's even before you get to the point that the rules you adopt tend to be adopted uh, with the influence of the big players uh, and are set up to be barriers to entry, often quite consciously, uh, by those big players. So, so all of that together means that the more regulation you have, the more of a drag you have on innovation and the more protection you have for established players against competition. Uh, and the revolving door only makes that worse because, as you say, very few people leave the federal government to go to a 12-person startup. You've been talking about this um, this idea of the, the revolving door surtax uh, for a while. What, what kind of reception have you gotten? So one of the interesting things about this uh, idea is that, uh, you know, I, I see it as sort of libertarian, I guess, and some people might see it as sort of right-leaning because it limits the power of the bureaucracy. But overall, I'd say it's been more positively received on the left. When I wrote the column, I heard pretty quickly from uh, Elizabeth Warren's office, and they liked it. Uh, I got a, an editorial endorsement in the Boston Globe. Uh, and then Bill Moyers, who's sort of, you know, the, the eminence grease of the left, I guess, uh, wrote a, a piece endorsing it in the Huffington Post. So I think that it's something that actually has both left and right support. The only real people who don't like it, I guess, are the people it would influence. But of course, they have a lot of influence. Yeah, so so maybe it's a non-starter. But wouldn't wouldn't a conservative argument against it be that wow, do we really need one more complication in an already too complicated tax code? I would be happy to simplify the tax code dramatically. Uh, but that said, I don't think this complicates the tax code very much compared to lots of other stuff that we do on a regular basis. Uh, it applies to a relatively small number of federal employees, uh, and the actual application of it is pretty simple. 
Uh, you take what somebody made when they work for the government and you uh, apply a surtax to the difference between that and what they make when they get out. And I actually do suggest uh, a few complications, if you will, uh, such that, for example, somebody who uh, left a high-paying job in private industry to go to the government and then goes back out shouldn't be punished for that. And maybe the baseline there should be what they were making when they entered the government rather than what they made when they were uh, at the government. But that's the sort of thing that congressional committees that write tax laws are supposed to deal with. And I think it's well within their abilities. What about the Singapore example, Glenn, where in Singapore, the government pays its top executives a very large amount of money so that they're not corruptible? Is that one alternative to get to pay, for instance, Eric Holder, the Justice Department, far more than he was paid uh, in, in the administration? You know, it's, it's, it's not a bad idea, uh, but you have to couple it with some other kinds of limits because, you know, uh, I'm always reminded of that scene from the Star Wars movie where uh, Princess Leia offers Han Solo more money than he could possibly imagine. And his response is, I don't know, I can imagine an awful lot. <laughs> um, you know, even if we paid, if we doubled or tripled the pay of uh, federal civil service people, that's still peanuts compared to what you can earn uh, if you leave and work for Google or Goldman Sachs. Uh, so I don't think that works unless you couple it with uh, just a ban on post-government employment that, you know, you, you work for the government until you retire and then you're retired and you get a very generous pension, but you're not allowed to work for anyone else. Uh, that, I think, would be, frankly, something I, I wouldn't necessarily oppose, but it would be a considerably more drastic step. So, Glenn, really fascinating idea. And, you know, as always, you're, you're, you're taking an issue that a lot of people have worried about and finding a way to, to really uh, to focus in on it. And it opens up a great discussion about the impact of, of the, you know, our relationships between government and business, even if, if the revolving door surtax never really does come, uh, come to fruition. So thank you so much for being on the show today. Well, thanks so much for having me. So, Jim, I think what Glenn Reynolds has to say about the revolving door and the surtax is a really interesting proposal. I'm not sure it'll ever get through Congress because it directly affects so many people who would have to decide about it. But it's, on balance, a really good idea. Glenn Reynolds is not somebody who I usually agree with. Um, he's a conservative. He's a libertarian. He's more towards your view of the world. But still, this is a really interesting proposal. Well, and it wasn't it intriguing that he said that you know a lot of people on the left have embraced it, and and for good reason. I mean, there people on the left should be very concerned about this kind of legal corruption, where big government protects big business. I mean, that's not what liberals, what the way liberals want the world to operate. One of the things that we didn't discuss is the impact on corporate welfare. I mean, there are so many areas of government where large corporations get a tax break or they get a regulatory break or something like that. If there wasn't quite such a, a close relationship between top government officials and top industry officials, maybe that wouldn't happen quite so right, much. Right, right. Well, here's what I like most about this idea. I think so often something goes on in government and business people don't like. They want to ascribe it to some moral failing. The lobbyists are evil. The corporations are greedy. You know, if you elected our side, this wouldn't happen. We wouldn't have all these lobbyists and stuff. But in fact, you know, the revolving door and the lobbyists, all of it is a response to really strong incentives. I mean, if the government can make or break your business, you'd be crazy not to try to influence regulations, but either for or against. It's not necessarily evil 
but what are the but we create so many incentives that encourage that behavior and then we get all high and mighty that people respond to the incentives what i like about the revolving door surtax is it takes away one of the incentives for this and instead of just saying don't do this because it's evil just say we're going to take the money away we're going to make it less profitable for you to go into government do a bunch of favors for big business, then get get out and double your pay because you know you've got all these government connections now. I, I wonder, you know, something I wish I'd asked Glenn about is whether there are great examples of this on the state level, because the federal government clearly is is the biggest problem here. But I wonder if some states have have, a try, have tried to be aggressive. Well, on well this. certainly, all states have the similar issues, and and you you know you do see you know, really unproductive regulation on the state level, too. I mean, right down to um, it's almost incredibly expensive, difficult to get a, a license to, you know, braid hair in New York State because the hair salons have gotten all these rules to try to make sure you get all kinds of training. They just want to keep out the competition and, and the, the officials support them. So trying to break up this overly chummy relationship between business and, and, and government is good. And I also like the idea because for people who think that regulation solves every problem, it shows you that somehow times regulation's part of the problem. You want to regulate the pranks, great, but guess what happens? Goldman Sachs gets more powerful, not less, in the end. Well, and also it's the nature of the regulation. You can be in favor of regulation of of certain industries, but it's the nature of it. It's oh yeah, how yeah. it's written. And believe me, like I'm writing a book about disasters right now. I am not saying we don't need regulation, but but we have to be honest with ourselves. Just because we say the regulation is going to rein in the you know the the uh, the greedy business people, it it doesn't usually work that way. Yeah, uh, and you have to be really focused in what you regulate. And just in case you don't think this really matters, let's take a really local example here in New York City. We've got we've got the mayor threatening to crack down on Uber. Oh, this is a is great a example. Really popular <laughs> right. ride sharing service, and some of that may well be because he's got buddies in the taxi industry oh. that are that that hate Uber. Oh, they've given tons of money to his campaign, you know, people on city council. And here's what's really interesting. You know, de Blasio is the, one of the most left-wing major politicians in America today. You'd think he'd be on the favor of the poor, minorities, people who don't get a lot of attention, um, you know, in our political system. Well, our taxi system in New York is heavily biased in favor of rich people who live in Manhattan. That's where the taxis are, uh, and and they can afford the expensive limousines. Uber is really good for serving people in the outer boroughs, and you know minorities are sometimes have a little bit of trouble getting picked up by a cab. Uber's going to come to your door and pick you up. You yeah, know, so that's just one and, example. And so, here so in de Blas, I'm, I'm going on a rant about this because yeah, it just drives yeah, me nuts. Yeah. Big entrenched businesses have a lot of control over government, even over ostensibly left-wing politicians like de Blasio. Jim, on this, I hate to admit it, but I agree with you. We actually 100%. agree. <laughs> and that's our show for the week. I'm Jim Meggs. And I'm Richard Davies. How Do We Fix It is produced by Miranda Schaefer. Our audio engineer is Denise Barbarita here at the beautiful Mono Lisa Studios in Upper Manhattan. And our music theme is by Lou Stravinsky. How Do We Fix It is a production of Davies Content. We do digital audio for creative companies. Reach us at Davies Content at gmail.com. Great. Great. That was fun. That was good. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. 
And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Are you ready for truly hydrated skin? Meet Hyaluronic Body Serum, a breakthrough in body care from Osea. It's clinically proven to instantly increase hydration by 161%. Their lightweight, fast-absorbing serum delivers 24 hours of non-stop hydration for silky, smooth skin without the sticky afterfeel. Osea's latest innovation combines the magic of their best-selling Hyaluronic Sea Serum with a new formula that's good for the whole body and five types of hyaluronic acid to target every layer of the skin. Osea is a women-founded, women-led brand that's been crafting seaweed-powered products for nearly 30 years. The best part? Everything Osea makes is clean, vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Treat your skin to clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code SUMMER at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A-Malibu.com code SUMMER.